there is a set of concepts in mathematics and physics that is widely used to turn intractable problems into tractable ones and it goes by the name of duality. Two theories are said to be dual or two quantities are said to be dual or an object in mathematics is said to have a dual if the two are in some sense paired and one of the things that we can do with one of them is to make it small even if it means that the other one is large. So as an example, suppose two letters X and Y stand for numbers and multiplied together they give 100. We could have both of them equal to 10, but we could also have X as 1 and Y as 100, or Y as 1 and X as 100, or indeed X as 0.1 and Y as 1000, and so on. We can make each of them arbitrarily small at the risk or expense of making the other one arbitrarily big. I think the idea is fairly straightforward and they would be called, in that very simple sense, dual. Now in mathematical physics, the idea of a dual is sometimes used to get over difficulties. So for example, suppose in some theory some number or quantity gets exceptionally large, large enough in other words to cause divergence of some theory or integral or formula or whatever it might be, doesn't matter what much. But it happens to have a dual which has the advantage of being small when it is large. Then the small value can sometimes be used in a way that allows an integral to converge even though the large value doesn't. And it turns out, and it's a remarkable fact and indeed a, a very useful one, that if we do the mathematics for the smaller value in which the theory behaves, even though you might not think it, we can sometimes deduce something about the large value which, in which the theory doesn't behave. So you get a sort of two for the price of one. You can deal with one of the numbers and by dealing with it, you also get information about the other one. No lesser persons than Sir Michael Atia, who was once a professor of mathematics, mathematical physics at Cambridge, or Ed Witten, who is still a theoretician working in the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, both use this notion in their work. And Sir Michael Atia gave some lectures in which he explained the concept very clearly, where he said that, and this is a sort of a mixture of what he says and what Witten says, 
another example is that in normal life, what you might call the life of straightforward description, we find the, the, the universe as Newton described it, very comfortable and easy to deal with. Uh, it consists of solid objects that move in various frames of reference. It just turns out, unfortunately, not to be the right one because we find that the Newtonian theories don't preserve the laws of physics when we change the reference frame, particularly if we change the frame into one that is accelerating in some sense. And then we have to invent new laws and introduce fictitious concepts like centrifugal and centripetal forces, for example, in order to explain the way the system behaves. So Newtonian mechanics is very convenient, very intuitive. It appeals to our sense of what is natural, I suppose we might say. It's just unfortunately it turns out to be wrong because it's uh, an inviolable principle of physics that the laws of physics should not depend upon the frame of reference in which they are observed, studied, measured, anything else. So the problem then is that Newtonian's mechanics is very convenient and easy to understand, but it's just not right and it doesn't satisfy the invariance idea. However, the opposite problem doesn't get you out of the woods or the opposite theory, because if we go for a theory such as quantum field theory, or there is a thing called loop theory, loop dynamics, is it? Something like that, about which I know absolutely nothing, which is an alternative to string theory. If we go for those, then we find that we end up with a theory of the world that seems to work in that Einstein's theory of relativity, general relativity and quantum theory and so on prove to be invariant under changes of reference, all changes of reference, which is good. But unfortunately, they are so difficult to understand that they effectively make it impossible for us to feel comfortable in the world that we find ourselves in. Because we can't really talk about it in ways that make sense to anybody. Now I have sort of summarised this in a very simple form in the context of the most advanced theories that we've got some physicists try to make quantum theory and general relativity dual theories, one a sort of boundary case of another. And there are some very sophisticated and advanced theories that do this amongst 
being the ones that Ed Whitten has published. I'm not going to go into them, partly because I don't yet them myself, uh, but also because it would take us far too far into a, a, a mathematical realm that I'm sure nobody really wants to find themselves in on a Saturday afternoon or indeed any other time for the most part. But as I was reading this stuff and not really understanding very much of it, it occurred to me that this notion of dual, duality, is possibly applicable to the other things that we've been talking about. In as much as if you take the parallel of we're comfortable in a universe we conceived as Newtonian, but the physics is wrong, and we can make the physics right, more or less, using the standard model and general relativity, although incomplete, do furnish us with something that seems to work, but at the expense of being so obscure and obtuse that nobody can, well with the exception of a few people who live, live these things all day long, nobody really can understand them. So you have a world that you can explain in terms of physics, but you can't inhabit, not in any everyday sense anyway. I found myself wondering whether the same doesn't apply, I'm thinking aloud here, to the way we use such things as religion or theology and philosophy and other things. We want the language that we use to be realistic in rather the way that the people who like Newtonian mechanics want the universe to be Newtonian. So when we are talking about gods and purpose and what life's all about, we use the language of religion very often rather than the language of science. And we would quite like it to be the case that the language we're using not only conforms to but refers to things that are real. Real things like gods or angels or the afterlife or divine plan or creativity or who knows, all, all this stuff. We'd like them to be real. But we should really, uh, we should, sorry, <laughs> we should rather see them rather like Newtonian physics as something we're comfortable with but which ultimately just doesn't work because it leaves too many things unexplained or finds itself pushing the level of explanation further and further down the track stupid expression that we took on currency recently of kicking the can down the road. Quite a lot of theological arguments do that. You may not have an explanation here, but you look for one beyond the universe, beyond the world, beyond even life itself. And maybe instead we should think in terms of theology being the equivalent of the Newtonian mechanics, 
it's a comfortable world to live in. It's just wrong. And I suppose what I've been trying to do in my Unmaking Sense theme is say the sense that we make of the world is really the equivalent of that, the equivalent of the Newtonian mechanics, the equivalent of the religious language, the theology, that talks as if certain things are real and true and permanent and certain, but they're just not. And so what I've been trying to do, although I hadn't couched it in these terms before, is make a case for a duel to sense, which doesn't make sense, rather like quantum field theory and general relativity, which makes sense in a very rarefied way to a very small subset of the human, spe human species, but to most of us just don't make sense. And what I'm arguing for is that we need to habituate a different way of making sense which we are at least initially uncomfortable with because it's unfamiliar and that's what i've been trying to say and i think that the notion of a duel between it's d-u-a-l of course i hope it's obvious of a duality, a dual theory, two theories, one of which is easy to get hold of but is wrong, and another one which is much more difficult to get hold of but which is right, that provides a sort of framework within which to think about what I've been saying. And these are just embryonic ideas at the moment, but they do strike me as being powerful useful. So I'll come back to that after a jingle. I suppose that one might also say that what I've been arguing for until now, which is that we should be given more examples, more everyday things that we can connect to, especially by our teachers at school and university, so that the tendrils of new ideas can insinuate themselves into our minds and take root there. I suppose what I'm saying is that if one takes the explanation, the simple explanation and the true theory as, in a sense, dual, the explanation may be, like Newtonian mechanics, ultimately mistaken, doesn't work, it's wrong, but the explanation is still valuable, just as the Newtonian mechanics is valuable for most everyday purposes, notwithstanding that it is wrong. And so you might imagine that I'm sympathetic to the idea that an explanation is always going to fall short in some regard, but 
it's better than nothing. And in as much as it's something that we can feel relatively comfortable with, something that we can identify with, something that we can use in order for the better to understand what's going on, to that extent, it's worthwhile, useful. And yes, we may, at some stage, need to flip over into the world which is far more complicated, far more sophisticated, but right at the expense of losing that everydayness. But I don't see that that is necessarily a disadvantage to the approach of trying to find something, initially at least, that is usable and familiar and accessible. And the purists who want us to start with the really difficult, incomprehensible stuff with none of that groundbreaking exemplification are, I think, just not taking the human condition sufficiently seriously because I think we desperately need that kind of exemplary material motivational examples or whatever you want to call it if we're to understand things and so we come back to the point that I've made many a time that even though the language of theology doesn't necessarily have a bearer. It doesn't refer. It doesn't talk about something that is real. It doesn't mean that it doesn't talk about anything at all. It doesn't mean that it's nonsense. It just means that we need to understand what it's talking about differently. We need somehow to be able to flip over into the dual space of what it really means, the universe that it is really talking about, the purpose that it really serves. And in that, we can then start to do some, I suppose Bultmann would have called it demythologization, and others would have called it other things. But the idea would be to say, well, we've been doing all this talking because we've wanted to be able to say something that we've thought was really important. It's just that we've tended to equate the Newtonian mechanics that we think so useful with the nature of the real world. And we can't and shouldn't do that because the world isn't like that. That's not what we've been talking about all this time. We've been talking about something else had we but realised it. And one of the things that I wanted to say about this notion of the dual is that it has the important property of legitimising the everyday and the inaccurate and the fleeting and the faltering. Because what it says is that, yes, this may not be the best possible theory, 
but in as much as we have to live our lives with the sensory and intellectual apparatus that we have and most of us almost all of us have considerably less intellectual apparatus than the likes of Sir Michael Atiyah and Ed Witten not to mention Einstein and the other archetypal geniuses of our relatively recent past because that's the case we don't really want to initiate a world in which they are the only people who are allowed to say anything at all because I think that would be intolerable that would make well first of all it would put them in a position that was intolerable but it would also put us in a position of utter subservience in which we had no option but simply to kowtow and take what they said literally as quote-unquote gospel and that I don't think is good enough it's a form of elitism and I'm not very keen on elitism at all because it leads naturally to the notion of leadership and subservience that I've critiqued many a time so in our notion of a dual space we can say well yes what you're saying doesn't quite pass muster if we apply the most stringent of tests to it but it will allow you to get by and for example I don't think we build things like aeroplanes using quantum mechanics the quantum mechanics may be implicit in the physics that we use but essentially we use classical physics to do most of the things that we do so it wouldn't do to disenfranchise it it wouldn't do to say you're not allowed to build well an aircraft a rocket or even a kitchen kettle until you can give an entirely satisfactory explanation of how it does what it does that passes the most stringent tests of quantum theory and general relativity that I think we would not be happy with we would reject it so on the other hand when we do this flip and it does remind me of a friend of mine who used to say that universities and places like the Institute for Advanced Study and MIT and Caltech or what he used to call hospitals for the mentally gifted in other words places where you put people out of harm's way to think their thoughts and do their thing until such time as not just because they have done the pioneering work but as I mentioned a few episodes ago because of all the people who've come along and filled in the gaps and dotted the I's and crosses the, crossed the T's behind them in order to fill in the spaces that their pioneering ideas their abductive leaps have definitely left behind and Ed Witten in an, out, in an interview 
he gave to someone in Quanta magazine describes John Wheeler's it from bit ideas from 30 years ago in just these terms. He says he was way ahead of his time and nobody could really understand what he was talking about and he had heard him lecture in person and said he drew a picture of the universe looking at itself through the human eye and I hadn't any idea what he meant. Well, for Ed Whitten to say that he hadn't any idea what he meant is quite a, an acknowledgement. But Wheeler was one of those visionaries who loved to dream dreams. And one of the dreams that he had was that we might get rid of the notion of the continuum in numbers. Get rid of the notion that the lines that we're dealing with are continuous get rid of the irrational numbers in large measure altogether. Well, I don't know whether that's feasible. I don't know whether anybody's tried to do it, but it's an interesting idea. So, where are we? Well, what we're starting to see is that these duels allow us to flip backwards and forwards. And that if we do put our cleverest people to work in the hospitals for the mentally gifted and wait until they produce something with enough tendrils and enough bridges to the rest of the understanding that we can command, to start to engage in a conversation with us all. If we do that, then we're starting to understand something about human discovery in which we give due place, due acknowledgement, due respect to all the layers in this many, many layered onion. So that right at the core, we find the likes of Witten and Einstein and all the others who do pioneering work that takes a long time for everyone else to come to terms with. And along with them, thankfully, there are lesser mortals. That's not an evaluative judgment, just descriptive. Lesser mortals who make their ideas more readily accessible. And I'm a great believer in this because, of course, I am, if nothing else, a lifelong teacher. And I like teaching. I like teaching myself and I like teaching other people. And I've just been watching the first series of Apple TV's supposed adaptation of the Asimov Foundation series, although I'd have to say that I can see very little in it that resembles very much of the original, but that's Poet's License. I suppose it's still quite enjoyable. But one thing that is true to the original is the notion that 
the uncomfortable intellectual tradition gets exiled. Sent away to Terminus, 50,000 light years from the center, where it can do its highfalutin psychohistory out of harm's way. And there's an interesting side to this. Which is that, according at least to the adaptation, I don't remember this in the original. But then it's a long time since I read the original trilogy. At least according to the adaptation. There are places where, as they put it, AI sympathizers were hanged. And there's quite a lot of hanging. It's a somewhat primitive harking back to something from thousands of years earlier. And the whole series is full of that sort of anachronism, but never mind. And the idea, I suppose, is that you could only sustain something like the Galactic Empire with cloned emperors at the top of it, called Dawn, Day and Dusk, depending on their longevity, which also isn't in the original, at least as far as I remember. You could only really sustain such a, an imperialistic view of the world by repressing and suppressing the sorts of ideas that the democratization of knowledge that comes from artificial intelligence couldn't but entail. And I do find the idea of the democratization of knowledge as that primary benefit that AI confers enormously attractive. Of course, this would really be, I suppose, the topic of another episode and maybe even another series. In order to get the most out of AI, you do need to know what sorts of questions to ask, what kind of interactions to have, what it can do, what it can't do, and how reliable it is when it does what it thinks or you think it can do because the answer is sometimes very and sometimes not very and learning to distinguish the two is quite important but it's here to stay and I suspect that the reference to the hanging of the AI sympathizers which we get in the Apple adaptation is a tongue-in-cheek reference to the kinds of noises that there are around at the moment and that there were around when the series was written and adapted for television. Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling and this episode has already got too many different bits in it. So I think I'm going to stop and uh, we'll come back to most of these things on and off in what follows. Thank you for listening.